You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me is my co-host David Leach, ITK principal and Renew Economy contributor. David, how are you? I'm well. I trust all our listeners uh, are well and uh, hearing all the news about reporting season, uh, which interests me as a long-time financial analyst. uh, Starting off today, I guess, Giles, with the uh, AGL results. Yes, well, absolutely. Um, there's been a few results. Um, yes, I guess for the reporting season makes uh, uh, February and September very exciting times, or was it February and August? Um, look, there's a lot to talk about today. We did hope we'd have a guest as well to talk about a very, very big battery project in Australia, possibly the biggest, but that didn't fall through. But yes, David, let's talk about AGL. Now, just after our podcast was published last week, they came out with the announcement of their huge write-downs. billion in all, um, including about $1.9 billion gross, I think, on their wind farm contracts, which we might talk about in a minute. Um, A lot of red ink, but more importantly, a lot of realisation that with the wholesale prices being much lower than where they expected it to be and for the outlook over the long term to be lower than what they thought they would be, they've suddenly realised that they can't go in their own time and change the course of the ship, as it were. Um, they have to have to move a lot quicker than they ever imagined that they would. Yeah, I agree with that, Giles. I guess for those of our listeners that aren't financially oriented, the point to understand, I suppose, about the write-downs is that they only affect the balance sheet, really. They don't change the cash flows that AGL will report in any meaningful way. The only thing uh, out of all of that that would change potentially the cash flows is if a power station was to close early uh, and that would accelerate the environmental liability. Uh, but, you know, with AGL potentially putting batteries in at a number of their power station locations, then that uh, may prevent that any need to have the environmental uh, closure costs actually incurred. But uh, the bigger point, as you pointed out, and as uh, I've been thinking about for years, quite honestly, uh, is what is what should uh, or what can AGL do? Um, you, I, I've been uh, basically not in favour ever since they bought, increased their inv- investment in Luoyang A and bought MacGen. Um, there have been some of us that have thought that that was a, a bad move. If you've got a long enough memory, you might remember that at one stage, AGL was the pretty much the largest renewable investor in Australia. Uh, that's where all those wind farm contracts came from. Uh, and Michael Fraser, the chief executive, was actually the uh, chairperson of the Clean Energy Council. But uh, times have changed, and now they're the biggest carbon emitter in the country, sing, uh, single entity. And they have a big problem on their hands trying to work out what to do. And uh, just as I finish off here, I should note that they're very proud of the fact that they uh, have some of the lowest cost and therefore the last to close coal stations. But I wonder if that isn't more of a problem than an advantage because it means that they can put off the evil day 
that much longer. So at the moment, there's a lot of talk, but they, they're really not grasping the nettle just at the second, although they might with a strategy day in terms of uh, uh, what I would regard as a good way forward. Oh, look, um, it's, it's, I, look, I agree with everything like that. I do remember Michael Fraser. Um, he was the architect of turning their strategy from basically green, as you mentioned, they were the biggest renewable energy investor, and into black. And I actually remember less than a decade ago, um, occasionally I was indulged and allowed, allowed to ask a few questions on their conference calls with analysts, and I'd ask something about the transition, and Michael would indulge me in sort of quite condescending manner, just to say, well, Giles, seeing it's you and you're from a renewable economy, I suppose I'd better mention solar just to keep you happy. And basically that was kind of their attitude to renewables. Um, um, but look, let's have a listen now to what Brett Redman, Brett Redman, the current CEO, had to say about this strategy day coming up. Look, I think, and this will be the, the, the difficult discussion with lots of people in the coming, whatever it is, six weeks or more or less uh, to the end of March when we hold the Investor Day, um, we'll get into sort of having to try and answer black and white, yes, no type questions in, a, in an incredibly complex environment that will require complex responses. Um, so in, in the slide there, what we're trying to do is call out some of the thematics that we're seeing happening in our market that have evolved from, you know, when I reflect on the market of five years ago and 10 years ago, um, you know, it is different today. And when you think about, you know, where customers are heading and what they're demanding in a product set today, it's, it's starting to become very different to 10 years ago. When you're thinking about the role of government policy in our markets today, it's very different to what it was 10 years ago. So all of these things are um, taking what, what was a very clear-cut set of assumptions and responses 10 years ago um, to a, a evolving and more complex set of conditions and responses that we're seeing in front of us today. So um, rather than rush it, um, we, we wanted to signal today that we're not sitting on our hands with our eyes shut and our ears closed uh, to conditions around us. But at the same time, we want to be thoughtful and come back with a complex answer to a complex situation at the end of March. And that was Brett Redman asking a question, answering a question at uh, the analyst briefing today. They say they've been sitting on, they have not been sitting on their hands. They haven't had their eyes closed. They haven't had their ears shut. But um, one wonders if they haven't been sort of given a sharp prod awake at the moment. What do you think, David, is going to be the part of the strategy? Redmond was very careful not to rule out a split. Now, we've seen these split in these companies happen um, in Europe, and particularly with the very big um, utilities there and, and also in the US. And you've suggested that as a possible option for uh, AGL. Um, and I guess the other option is a more rapid coal closure or a closure of one of their units but um which way are they going to turn i don't know and um all the paths are complicated and, and none of them are going to be easy uh, the example i uh, like to focus on is orsted uh, which is a danish company uh, that was basically the thermal energy supplier in denmark funnily enough uh, and it got a new younger chief executive who said uh, stuff that for a joke uh, we're going into offshore wind uh, and they were privatised and the offshore wind investment has been very successful so far uh, and the company share price did it incredibly well. And and uh, I think myself that there are still frontiers in the just the bulk supply of energy, not uh, firming stuff, which batteries and, and, and firming generation does, but bulk supply as as 
wind and solar in, 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 into Asia, for instance. I mean, I think offshore wind in, around Japan and South Korea can be a massive business. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's only one of a, a realm of possibilities. The, um, it's like uh, football, Giles, I hate to use the analogy. You don't really know what a good manager is going to do until he does it. And people sitting in the, in the sidelines telling him really actually understand how it is from the inside. And I guess AGL's problem, as you say, they've sort of talked the talk, but um, their generation mix remains fundamentally coal. It's more than 80%. Um, you know, they've sort of tried to make inroads into battery storage and electric vehicles and more lately sort of telco plans and things like that. But they've just kind of realised or they admitted today that this transition is far happening faster than they could reasonably have expected or that they did expect. Is that a reasonable claim? Is that, is that a reasonable excuse, do you think? Well, I do think things have accelerated a lot, but I, I, I mean, it, and it, it may have been unreasonable to expect things to have changed as quickly as they have, but that wasn't unreasonable to us here at IDK. I can tell you for the last three years, we've based our so far reasonably successful price forecasting model on the fact that there would be enough policy around uh, to produce, you know, say 50% renewable energy, wind and solar by 2030. And in fact, it is running ahead of that. Uh, um, and it, it was always likely that if you accepted the science of climate change, that the pressure was going to grow and things were going to accelerate. And as, as uh, it's like a snowball, I suppose, not that I've seen one of those for a while, but uh, uh, it just basically, once, once it gets going and gets ahead of steam up and everyone starts to fall in line, then all of a sudden it's, uh, it, it moves very quickly. And as I said, who wants to have the, the BlackBerry? The BlackBerry is the best phone of its day, but if everyone's switching to, to a smartphone, all of a sudden having a BlackBerry isn't so smart. Well, I guess one of the questions of the transition is how quick it will happen and how it will be facilitated. And one of the big questions for the market at the moment has been since the announcement of the resignation last year of Audrey Zieberman, the chief executive of the Australian Energy Market Operator, who would AEMO choose to replace um, Ms. Siebelman? And remember, AEMO is sort of um, partly owned by the major generators and partly owned by the government. I mean, it's supposed to be an independent statutory authority. This week, they announced their new their choice for the new CEO. He is Daniel Westerman. He is an Australian. He is based at the moment in London in the UK. He is head of transformation and renewables at National Grid, which is the big UK company, which apart from um, helping run the actual operations, a bit like AEMO in the UK, also has its own sort of um, uh, utility business, and it does that in the US as well, where Westerman was actually responsible for growing not only their utility scale renewables business but also the behind the meter renewables business. David, on the face of it, it looks like a comforting and interesting appointment. It does indeed. It's uh, at, at, at first blush, it looks like the board of AEMO needs to be congratulated and also whoever they employed to do the executive search. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, Mr. Westerman was also a volunteer advisor to uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is uh, famous for its uh, uh, support for renewables in the United States and, and, and sort of doing research in that area. Uh, but look, you know, whoever it is, it's going to be, uh, and it is him, it's going to be a big job. There's still a lot of stuff for AEMO to do. Uh, they've made a lot of progress, obviously, as you will attest, uh, under Audrey Zebelman. Uh, but there's just still so much to do. 
AEMO is now in the process of um, preparing its next version of the integration system plan, which is already a remarkable document in the context of Australian politics and um, the energy transition, but actually realised, you know, the technologies that were here and coming and how quickly that would change things. The next version of the ISP is going to go even further, is actually going to canvas what is required for a 1.5 degree um, Paris climate um, goal, which in the context of the electricity grid doesn't mean sort of decarbonising by 2050 or 2045 or 2040 even. It probably means sort of reaching zero emissions in the grid by around about the mid-2030s. So I think that's going to be absolutely fascinating. As you well, thought- well, Giles, that's, that's one thing, and I hesitate to butt in, but in my, in my, in my humble opinion, there's been, it goes well beyond transmission. It needs to be this plan for the control system. Uh, you, you know, we had Stephen Sproul talk about that a little bit last week, and I just think that uh, the vision uh, that AMEO has presented, uh, as good as it is, is not big enough. No, look, I'd agree with that, but I think that's going to be addressed, I think, in the next version of the ISP. I think it's going to sort of think beyond transmission and it's going to talk about um, some of those sort of controls and the sort of the detail of how the grid actually operates together. And I think that's actually a very important point, um, although some people sort of, you know, sort of worry a little bit that it'll be too much hands-on and too much like centralised control, which was often a description that was um, or an accusation that was thrown at them. But um um, certainly, uh, we're going to need some more control over the, some of the distributed energy and um, and the smaller generators. So, look, that's a, a really interesting, really interesting aspect. So, Giles, those people shouldn't think we shouldn't be rushing into it. Is that right? Oh, look, no. Well, look, I mean, um, no. Look, I think people have. Uh, uh, that's that's my, my central control joke. Sorry, sorry, that's my central control joke. Russian, you know, Russian, you know, like Central Control, Communist Party, all that sort of stuff. But anyway, uh, let's not go there. What else has been happening this week? Uh, if, if we're making dad jokes, Giles, uh, people stop listening to podcasts pretty quick, won't they, really? Oh, no, I don't think so. I think we'll probably get more, even more um, listeners. Look, um, there's actually been a few interesting developments around the place. Um, just before we came to air, UPC and AC. Um, now, this is this sort of conglomerate. Um, AC Energies actually comes out of the Philippines. UPC is a collection um of other executives and and um also an, an, an asian company which has done a lot of development around the world they're behind the robin's plains and sorry the robin island and jim's plain um huge wind project in tasmania which has sort of come up against a bit of opposition from the locals over transmission lines the baruta pumped hydro project in um south australia and the New England solar farm in Urella in Barnaby Joyce's electorate, praise be, um, they've now announced that they've got uh, finance from the Commonwealth Bank, Westpac and the Bank of China for the first 400 megawatt stage of this project. It will come with a 50 megawatt, 50 megawatt hour battery. Um, remarkably, they haven't actually got a power purchase agreement, but maybe they think they're going to land one sometime soon and that will be plain sailing. So I think that's an interesting development, David. Well, it is. And uh, having just driven through Urala uh, twice in the past three months and very close to my hometown, uh, I'll be interested to see how it goes. I think you had another story there that a, a wind farm a bit further south around Nundal has run into uh, opposition. Uh, so there's been a lot of quite a lot of small news. I'd like to uh, congratulate your reporter, Michael Marsengarb, for his uh, story uh, that uh, Delta is actually not going to take its $8.7 million dollars. And I guess the message you take from that is that it's more and more likely that Delta will close. 
And one of the other background stories that I think is going to run this year besides the control system is making sure that someone's got a plan together to make sure that whatever coal stations close, they close in an orderly fashion um, because I think there's a risk uh, that actually as things continue accelerating that we could get quite a lot of coal uh, closures, one in Victoria, one in New South Wales besides Liddell and perhaps uh, you know something in, in Queensland units at least uh, um, happening you know, say by 2025, 2026, uh, and then Vale's point after that. So it's all uh, moving along. Look, it's a fascinating thing. This is part of um, Angus Taylor's um, writing New Generation Investment Project, which he sort of unveiled in great fanfare more than two years ago. And one of the targets, of course, was coal. It was the only coal project that actually made it into the so-called shortlist. But um, as someone observed, I think, on Twitter today, um, it's a bit sad when the government can't even give money to one of its sponsors who refused the money for a relatively small amount to sort of help extend the life of their coal plant. So I think you're quite right, David. Um, it's um, it's an extraordinary um, sort of sequence of events here um you know they said oh you can have nine million dollars and then they were told they had to apply for it as michael wrote in in january and, and suddenly we get this call um yesterday sort of saying well we didn't actually want it and uh, we're now we've told them we didn't want it but um um it was a press release they said they wrote a couple of months ago but didn't actually bother to send to anyone anyone so it's it's really quite an extraordinary thing but um look the upshot of it is there'll be no coal money um uh, no money for there, but Angus Taylor has singly failed to distribute any of this money for the Ungi projects. There was a couple of gas projects, one in uh, I think Queensland, one in Victoria, that were said that they would had been short shortlisted. That's moved nowhere in, in almost two years. And the four pumped hydro projects in South Australia are sitting there with no answer. In fact, we're still waiting for Arena to decide on the $40 million project that um, $40 million of funding it was going to give to one of those projects. So all at a bit of a standstill. I'm just on that pumped hydro thing, David, I'm just wondering why that is. Is that because the cost of pumped hydro has risen? Is it because people can't quite f see how it fits into the market such as it, it's structured right now? Or is this just sort of delays and, and or is it just a combination of everything? Well, I, 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 I do think pumped hydro uh, struggles versus batteries. When I think back uh, four years ago to the sort of pumped hydro versus battery cost argument, the idea was as soon as the duration got above about an hour, that pumped hydro would have a big advantage. But then it turned out that pumped hydro was going to cost a lot more than people expected uh, and batteries were going to cost a lot less. And, you know, not only that, you can whack a battery in anywhere that you've got a, a enough transmission, which is lots of places, and get it done within, say, six months, whereas your pumped hydro project, you've got any number of studies. So I just think pumped hydro has got quite hard. And perhaps uh, some of the best evidence of that is in Queensland, where Genix is still, frankly, struggling to get its project over the line. Um, um, you know, there's a lot of talk, uh, endless talk about uh, Snowy 2 and how much it's going to cost and what its economics look like. Uh, the project that the CE, that Arena was going to fund in South Australia, some shortlist winner that uh, Darren Miller happily told us was going to happen by Christmas about 15 months ago, hasn't actually happened. You know, it's uh, pumped hydro is struggling. Mm, absolutely. And, um, and that's despite the fact that um, I think um, someone was actually suggesting um, Kerry Stokes, the um, billionaire who owns the Seven Network, popped his head up um, the other day and has suggested that the Collie coal mine in Western Australia be turned into a pumped hydro plant. Um, but um, it's not entirely clear whether that will actually be approved or go ahead or to what extent it can sort of mitigate rehabilitation costs. But um, anyway... 
Look, you mentioned look, that- just just before uh, you know we move off, we we move away from pump time, but it does bring home, I think, yet again, that just the if I can, can contrast uh, two liberal people, Matt Keane in New South Wales, or the West Australian Liberal Opposition policy for one hundred percent renewables with just the complete policy vacuum that, you know, that uh, I had our, our cartoonist draw an ostrich, not an emu, with its head in the sand. And I just think that, you know, Angus Taylor pretty much resembles an ostrich. It's not just in relation to, to, to generation policy, but the electric vehicle policy. You know, we had the last petrol refinery pretty much, or one of the last ones uh, announcing its closure, Altona in Victoria, Oil import is a national security issue. If things get ever get tough, we have so much potential for electric vehicles, and the lack of it, you know, it was just such a non-policy. People who have been, and as I said, no one could be a bigger supporter of Matt Keane than me. Uh, um, just you know, you see what's happening federally, and it's just the lack of policy. I mean, you're in politics to, to, to get something done, not to be a complete and utter, you know, waste of space. With well, your head as, when, as, as we've talked about before. Yeah, look, that EV policy was um, quite extraordinary. And um, the, the trouble he went to to create this sort of false picture about the emission, the, the, the cost of abatement of having electric vehicles. And, you know, he's been and, and look, um, between myself and Katan and Michael on Renew Economy, we've actually sort of pulled this apart. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. I mean, they're sort of ignoring the fuel costs and the, the fuel production costs from overseas. And this, as you say, it's all imported fuel comparing big electric vans with small petrol ones, um, ignoring um, the emissions reductions in the grid beyond five years when every car will probably last 10, 15, or in the case of electric vehicles, likely 20 years. I mean, they've gone to an extraordinary effort to disguise and to sort of create this idea that the cost of abatement of electric vehicles would be horrendously expensive. It's exactly the same tactics that they used against wind and solar, um, you know, a decade ago, and still... And um, it's just really quite frustrating. It's frustrating because at least in the case of coal generation, you could see the argument for coal exports, right? I mean, coal is our biggest export dollar earner. Right? No one, no one's going to argue with that fact right today. It won't be in the future, and it's it's a problem for Australia, but it is today. But what on earth is there for anyone to lose by supporting electric vehicles in Australia? There's just nothing to lose. Um, it beats me, um, David, but um, this has been going on for a couple of years. If you go back to the um, the uh, election, remember the um, the electric vehicle is going to ruin your weekend. It was going to sort of kill the tradies' ute. And um, and Angus Angus made all sorts of efforts, sort of saying, you know, it would take you five days to charge your electric vehicle with solar panels. And um, God, I mean, look, it just it just it just went on and on. You did. What, what about the tradies? But anyway, let's keep moving. Oh, look, the tradies—they're going to love those electric vehicles when those um, when those when those electric utes turn up. I mean, it's just going to be um, yeah, it's going to be chaos actually. Well, speaking of tradies, tradies, speaking of tradies, uh, we've got the Electrical Trades Union in Queensland, Giles. Um, uh, uh, you know, sort of complaining about the solar industry in Queensland again. Yeah, before we just go into that, I just do want to, just for the listeners who may not have caught, you did mention the WA um, target of 100% renewables by the Liberal Party. This has actually come out um, sort of this week um, ahead of their election campaign, which is going to be, um, or as part of their election campaign. 
Um, look, Liberals in WA have got absolutely no chance of winning the election, but um, the fact is that they've actually come out and said, we want, we should, we think we should have a target of 100% renewables by 2030. I think it's quite extraordinary. Notice that you've got the South Australian Liberal government, 100% renewables by 2030. The Tasmanian Liberal government um, already at 100%, but they want to be 200% by 2040. And of course, Matt Keane in New South Wales with his extraordinary transformation plan. So just, just to sort of underline that difference between the state Liberal parties and the federal coalition. But um, getting back to, yes, the electrical trade union and the um, and the solar farm problems up in Queensland. Look, the solar industry has got a real problem here. Um, this is yet another case where we've got an EPC contractor coming in from overseas. We've got disputes with local contractors. We've got allegations of people not being paid. We've seen it at the Kayamal solar farm in um, Victoria with another international party. Um, we hear things, problems at Wellington. Now we see it at Gangari, um, which is owned by Shell, which has obviously been delayed by about a year. The solar industry sort of says that the, uh, sorry, the electrical trades union says that the solar industry is looking like a, like an industry of cowboys. And I've got to say that the overwhelming majority of people in the solar industry are excellent people. But you see it in the margins, you see it in rooftop solar, you see it in commercial solar, and we see it also in utility scale solar. We wrote this story in this analysis last August about the dark side of big coal, solar, how some people have been left out, hang out to dry. And it's a real issue. And the solar industry, I think, has got to address this in a major way because it's leaving a bad taste across regional Australia. Um, and people are really quite sick of it. And, um, you know, it's an issue. It's, it's, a, it's a reputational issue for Shell. Not that we think that Shell's done anything wrong. They're simply the owner of the project, but they actually operate their gas um, exploration and production in this area. So they've got quite close ties to the local community. Uh, so, that, Shell may not have done anything wrong, but they select the contractor. They own the project. Uh, so they, it, it, you know, it ends up on their desk anyway. I mean, reputation, uh, you know, you have to take responsibility along the whole chain. You can't just pass it down. Well, look, that's exactly right. But anyway, look, um, so look, I mean, look, you know, the ETU has been complaining about the solar industry for various reasons. And, look, you know, they've got sort of various issues there. And, and they pushed forward this rather ridiculous plan about having at least sort of fully qualified electricians to load up solar panels, which is going to bring the whole thing to a halt. So, you know, they're not completely blameless. And they don't, it's not as though they don't have an agenda. But I think in this issue, I think there's a really strong point, And I think it really is an issue that the industry needs to address. So, Giles, that uh, probably brings us on to the world's biggest battery. Uh, and it, it's not even been built in Queensland, so it's probably obviously in all Texas, so it can't be the, really the biggest, but it's the uh, biggest announcement anyway. Look, it is a big announcement. Um, people are getting very good at very big announcements. So this is CEP Energy. And um, they actually broke cover last year when they came out with a very big plan, um, almost as big as this, about 1,000 megawatts of solar and a whole bunch of batteries. But... Their plan was to kind of put solar on the rooftops of a whole bunch of commercial businesses and supermarkets and things like that, and then kind of link them all together in some sort of giant virtual power plant. Now they've gone one step further, and they want to build a 1,000 megawatt or 1,200 megawatt um, battery storage facility. We don't know the length of the storage at Curry Curry, which just happens to be the place where um, Angus Taylor and Scott Morrison would dearly love Snowy Hydro to build a gas generator. Look, two big projects into one aren't going to fit, David. 
Well, there's also the uh, 850 megawatts of batteries uh, that AGL is talking about, and, and they're talking about them fairly seriously. And Look, uh, the only point I'll make is that batteries are quite big CapEx uh, items. Uh, it's easy to write the announcements, but if you're going to uh, build a, a gigawatt of uh, batteries and no, not even mention what the duration is, uh, you know, that's a billion dollars, let's say, of CapEx. I mean, it's um, show me the money. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's a good question. But look, it is interesting. There's a lot of interest. I mean, there's, there's clearly so much interest in battery storage. In fact, I think I saw in a, a recent AEMO um, um, document all the different battery projects that had sprung out or just been proposed. I mean, they've got like a pipeline of pr projects, which I think equates to about 150 gigawatts of winds and solar around the country. But there's an extraordinary number of battery storage projects. Um, so um, we'll have to wait and see, a bit like wind and solar. Um, for all the ones which are announced, um, wait and see which ones are built. But look, these guys seem quite serious, so, but um, an interesting development. It is an interesting development. Uh, I, uh, you know, the alternative philosophy that I, I think needs to be at least uh, shown why it wouldn't be a better or at least as good an idea is to have these kind of locational-based little microgrids, you know, with community batteries and, and stuff that can provide these um, uh, grid services as well as, as as we've discussed a little bit before and I hope we can discuss some more in the future that that together can network up to provide uh, and you know it's this community feel about it um, it's all very well having a virtual power plant with a solar uh, opera household in Victoria or another one in Queensland but you know it's uh, I find it hard to see how that's a particularly efficient uh, design for everyone uh, mm. but anyway um, another little one, I mean, one of your favourite little things, um, over in, in WA with Synergy and Western Power and their power bank um, trials. So they've actually installed another nine since I think we last spoke about it, and they've actually sort of taken their sort of their their tariff trial. So it's as much as a trial of actually having the battery in the grid, and I think that's probably been sort of you know affirmed, and that's a really good idea because it sort of helps sort of manage the um, excess amounts of rooftop solar they've got in certain parts of the grid over there. But they're trying to sort of fiddle around with the with the tariffs and. And, and what would encourage people to do this, that, and um, and and use it in the way they want to? So now they're actually sort of in, um, expanded that tariff trial for another five hundred homes, and this will actually allow people to sort of store or get a credit for the stored energy and basically bank it beyond their quarterly um, power bill, which is really interesting. So um, you know you sort of stock up of um, solar, put it into the community battery. Um, over summer and you basically get a credit for it um, over the winter perhaps so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out it certainly will and uh, i hope we can catch up with osgrid to hear about how they plan to follow through on the quite big study that they they released last year absolutely well there's an invitation and um, we've also got a request in um, everyone for daniel westerman um, the new aemo chief but um, he's not speaking at the moment because he's still at national grid so i think just sort of you know, the protocols demand that um, he move on from his current employment but um, as soon as he gets here we'll be putting our hand up um, immediately for a chat with the new chief executive of the australian energy market operator um, david before i say goodbye i'd just like to say thank you very much to our sponsors um pylon and um evergen and um for their ongoing sponsorship and um have another interesting week david it's going to be it never stops no and i think it's uh, great to have our sponsors pylon and evergen and uh, i think you know it's uh 
the rooftop industry has gone from strength to strength and surprised, I, I suspect, just about everyone with how well it's doing. And let's hope they have another great year as well. Absolutely. Look forward to talking to you again next week, David. And bye to everyone. And bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.